If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 2, for our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 22. As you do so, I want to make a quick correction. Technology's great when it works, isn't it? And when it doesn't, it can get us into theological trouble. The first point in your bulletin from our passage today says that Jesus protests the sacrificial system. Jesus did not come to negate or protest or tear down the sacrificial system. In fact, he came to protect it. And so please make that correction for your sake and for mine. We certainly don't want to enter the realm of theological heresy this morning. Because the second point is that Jesus proves to be that sacrifice. It would be wrong of him to say that it is unhelpful or unnecessary while then also saying that he is the fulfillment of it. And so I encourage you to make that correction and I also encourage you to know that is entirely my fault and not of our secretary. Well this morning of course we're going to be dealing with the passage where Jesus enters the temple. He enters the temple and comes across a scene that requires action. It requires him to cleanse the temple. And then he explains why this is so important. And we just alluded to that. Jesus is going to teach why it is so important because ultimately that system, that very system, points us to him. All of the Old Testament points us to him. And we get a different Jesus. If you were with us last week, you will remember at the wedding at Cana, Jesus performs his first miracle in his public ministry. We see a a kind, a loving, a sympathetic Jesus. We see a Jesus that shows great love and respect for his mother. We see a Jesus who um, saves this couple from embarrassment. And then we shift. We have a, almost a hard shift in the narrative. We, we go from that view or version of Jesus to this one where he is binding cords together for a whip and running out animals and people away from the temple. And this causes us to ask some questions, doesn't it? Most of us are taught that anger, that violence is a sin, That is wrong for us to act out of heated passion to display our emotion in such ways. And so is Jesus wrong? Is is this an example of of Jesus showing us what not to do, how not to behave? I dare say again, we want to stay away from theological heresy. Uh, We have to answer that as no. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we must conclude Jesus and his righteous anger here in this passage was not sinful, and more so was the appropriate response to this situation. So we're going to need to dive into that and consider that this morning and and weigh that against our own temptation toward anger. But before we do those things, let us read the Word of God this morning. Would you please follow along with me as I begin in verse 13. 
and read through the 22nd verse. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let us now bow our heads in prayers. We ask for the Lord's wisdom and guidance as we come upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to this passage, may you give us wisdom and guidance. Lord, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. This idea of the sacrificial system, this idea of righteous anger, this idea of Jesus Christ as the true sacrifice, as the true temple. These ideas are ideas that we desperately need to understand, to understand our great God. And so I pray that you would give us understanding this day. Help us to see and to believe. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my great joys in life is cooking. And I have a few cooking tools, a few cooking instruments that I like more than others, none of which comes close to my cast iron set of skillets. I love them above all else that I have as far as cooking tools. I love cast iron. It's consistent. It heats evenly. Um, you can season it in certain ways. You can have one only for cornbread, and it'll make cornbread unlike anything else. But cast iron's also finicky. It, it also can become polluted, if you will. It can, it's easy to mess it up, particularly the older style of cast iron um, before Lodge started mass marketing it. Sometimes someone would, heaven forbid, use a heavy soap in cast iron. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about today, just don't. Sometimes it would uh, be used to cook something too acidic. Sometimes flakes or chips, because of too harsh of tools, would be used, would, would get in and uh, potentially cause contaminants in your cooking. And especially the old cast iron, you would then have to go through a seasoning process, a re-seasoning process. And how that was historically done, you would take your skillet and then you would use a harsh soap and you would clean the inside and outside of it. You would scrub it vigorously. And you would take a cooking oil, one with a very high heating point, and you would put it in a fire and you would burn it two or three hours re-seasoning, putting that protective layer back on that cast iron. And then you would wash off the ash and then you would oil it again and then you learned your lesson and you didn't have to do it again. 
Sometimes something has to be stripped down in order to be used properly. It has to be brought back to its intended use. Well, here in our text this morning, that's effectively what Jesus is doing. Jesus is is taking this system, the sacrificial system, the, the, the temple, the house of God, and seeing that it has become polluted, he seeks to restore it to its intended purpose. To strip it down, to clean it out, to remove the contaminants, and to bring it back to a state of usefulness and of blessing. And so this morning, I really want us to see how Jesus does this. And he does this in two ways. It's a two-step process. First, we see, and, and that's why I made my, my correction to you earlier, Jesus protects the sacrificial system. He's not there to do away with it. He's there to utilize it, to fulfill it. We see that in verses 13 to 17. And then secondly, Jesus proves to be the fulfillment, the truth, the reality of that system by showing himself to be the true sacrifice. And we find that in verses 18 to 22. And so let us consider each of these points beginning with his protection of this system. And many of us are familiar with this story. It occurs in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all display Jesus tossing the temple tables and running people out of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, however, save this story till the end of Jesus' ministry, right before Passion Week. Where John here has it at the beginning, at the early point, at the, the start of his public ministry. Which leads us to ask an important question, who's right? Well, the simplest answer is they both are. What most likely happened and what scholars most uh, believe is that the, there were two instances of Jesus cleansing the temple. One at the start of his ministry, as we see here in John, and then one at the end of his ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This serves a, a few purposes for us and is helpful Mainly because it shows the heart of man. Aren't we a forgetful people? Aren't we prone to fall back into old ways? To get comfortable? To get lazy, if you will, in our worship, in our commitment, in our devotion to God? Isn't it reasonable to assume that Jesus needed to remind them harshly, but remind them more than once? You are not using this system in the way in which it was intended. And so, we see here at the start of his ministry, this event occurred. Now, having said that, one other kind of preliminary point, uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says, we want to be very careful not to cast Jesus as this religious zealot. We want to be very careful not to take this seen, if you will, and especially that it's duplicated, and say he was a radical, he was a fanatic. Jesus was ready to go in and shake things up and stir things and, and completely disorient everybody's understanding. Now, his 
teaching did have that effect, but that's because they were misunderstanding in the first place. He didn't, he didn't come to throw everything on its head. He actually came to bring clarification and understanding to what people should have already been seeing. But we don't want to classify him as a, as a zealot, as, as one who resorts to anger to accomplish his purposes. This actually is a rare instance in the scriptures where Jesus gets passionate about something in, in this way. And so because it's a, an, an interesting, a specific incident, we want to pay careful attention to it. And really we want to ask ourselves a question, why is the Lord angry here? And so let's, let's uh, focus on that for a moment and see if we can come to an answer. Well, our text says that Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. As a good Jew, he was preparing himself and the disciples were ready to observe the annual Passover feast. The Lord said repeatedly in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were to remember Passover each year. This memorial, if you will, was to remind them of their time in Egypt. And it was to remind them specifically of the night of the 10th plague. The 10th plague, of course, being the death angel was coming. The firstborn were to be slaughtered. But those who made a sacrifice, who shed the blood of a lamb, whose blood was spilt and covered on the doorpost and the doorframe of their house, on them would the death angel pass over. And so Israel was to remember how God, through sacrifice, passed over their house, brought salvation to their house, and ultimately that's what led to them being freed from Egyptian slavery. That's what led to them being freed and the incident at the Red Sea. They were to remember. And why is that important? Well, it's important because of the second part of this passage. What is Jesus I am the temple. I am the place of worship. I am the place where sacrifice happens. Ultimately, it is me that you're looking for. And so Jesus is there observing Passover so that they start to understand that it's all about him. And that really is what's going on here is that the people would understand this is about Jesus. And so he's in Jerusalem observing the Passover feast. And as he comes into the temple, it says he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. We've got to be very careful with this. We've got to be careful with this for two reasons. One, these professions, these jobs weren't necessarily bad. Jesus' anger here is not because there were people who had animals for sale, it was not because there were money changers available. For this is, these were needed services. Some people came from poor families and poor households and they couldn't afford an animal for sacrifice. They would have to save up all year. Maybe they grew up in an area where there weren't a lot of animals available. A lot of poor families, maybe you didn't have an extra sheep or an extra lamb, or maybe you couldn't find a dove. And so they would need to go to Jerusalem, and in order to give the sacrifice, they would have to purchase one there, using their earnings, their money, their resources. Sometimes, and, and the scriptures tell us this, that families had to go together. 
Several families had to go in on a lamb. We're going to use this as a household lamb, again, because of our um, financial situation. And then the the money changers, again, this is a a similar thing going on. The temple tax, which all males were required to pay, was in a particular coinage. It was the Tyrian coinage. And specifically, this tax was a half shekel in Tyrian coinage. And D.A. Carson notes, sometimes two families, if if the tax was half a shekel, would come together and pay one shekel for the two of us. But maybe you lived in a a rural place. Maybe you lived in a place that didn't use Tyrian coinage. And so you needed to exchange money. Any of you that's gone on an international trip, um, you know that this has to happen. You have to have your money exchanged. It's becoming less and less an, an issue nowadays, but it certainly has been the case historically. And so it's not wrong. Jesus' anger doesn't come from the what? The, the, the money being exchanged, the, the um, animals being bought. And it's not the case that they were doing it here. I mean then, sorry, excuse me, then. That they were doing it at Passover. So it's not that they did it, and it's not when they did it. Passover would have been a popular time for people to be in Israel. It would have been a popular, or Jerusalem, it would have been a popular time for people to need these things as they came and made their sacrifices, they came and made their offering. The problem, if it wasn't the what and it wasn't the when, it was the where. The where was the problem. If you think about the the temple and, and its divisions, you have an outer court, which was called the Gentiles' court. This was the last place that a Gentile could enter into the temple for worship. It was the outermost courtyard. This was a place for prayer. It was a place for reflection. It was a, a place for contemplation of the Lord. And yet it's been turned into a bank and a barnyard. Imagine, if you will, we're sitting here this morning and we're listening to this sermon. And in the entryway by the main door, right there in that little square, you've got an ATM machine that we've got open to the public. And you've got a farmer who's tending some sheep. Imagine, if you will, if any of you have been around farm animals, what's the smell right now? If you've ever found yourself at a bank, um, are people usually happy if they're having to go to an ATM? A lot of times they're not. A lot of times they're at an ATM because they they went to the county fair and they forgot that they only take cash and you have to then go take that extra surcharge to get some cash so that you can go into the fair and pay for your corn dog. And imagine all of that going on in the entryway right now while we're trying to listen to the words of the Lord. Do you think that might be distracting? Do you think that might take away from your ability to focus? Do you, do you think that that might draw your attention a little bit? Well, this is what Jesus witnesses as he comes into the temple. A, a place where he's preparing to, to worship. He's, he's preparing to offer, have sacrifices offered. 
And yet he is completely distracted. And so the text tells us, unsurprisingly, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In the latter account, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, he's going to use stronger verbiage. He's going to say, a den of thieves. Jesus was so driven by passion for the place of worship that he purified it from distraction and improper use. We have a hint here as to why this mattered so much to Jesus with that, with that line, do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's an important sentence or, or, or clause there. Why? Because what is Jesus proclaiming publicly? That's my father. I am the son of God. This is my house of worship and you're using it improperly. And if there's ever anyone that had, has the right to tell others that you're using my father's house improperly, wouldn't it be the Son of God? Wouldn't he have the right to say, get out? In fact, we're told here that the disciples remembered zeal for your, father, for your house will consume me. This is a quotation from Psalm 69.9. This is not a surprise. In fact, this had been prophesied that he would be passionate about his father's house, about his worship. And so let's get back to our question we, we posed at the beginning. Why is Jesus justified with anger here? Why is it okay for Jesus in this instance when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, if you have anger in your heart, it's equal to murder. So why can he be angry here and then we can't be angry there? What, what's the difference? And I, I think there's one key difference. Where does the anger originate? What, what is the source? What is the cause? What is, what is the um, object of, or the subject of the anger? Jesus is angry, why? Well, the text says, because his father is being dishonored. Because his father is not being listened to. Because these people are blaspheming the Lord by improper worship and by distracting others and taking away from their opportunity and obligation to serve God as God has told us to. And so Jesus is angry not because he's been offended, although he's a special case. He could be angry because he's been offended because he is God. But Jesus is angry because God has been offended. And on God's behalf, he reacts in anger. Now, let me ask you this. Has there ever <laughs> been a circumstance in your life or my life when we have been angry and 100% of our anger has been, you have offended God. I can't say that. I can't speak about you, but I can't. There has never been a moment in my life that I have been so angry about something 100% because God has been offended. At some level, at some point, I have to put me in it. My anger comes because I have been offended. 
not God. And even if I'm angry at something that has to do with God, it's usually added in there, mixed in there at some point, some percentage of it is because it also affects me. That's the difference. That's why Jesus can be angry and not sin. We're told in Scripture to be angry and not sin. But why we are also warned, beware anger. Because we place ourselves as the offended party, where Jesus places God the Father. And so righteous anger comes from a place of God being offended. So, is this text a text that warns us against anger? Are we, are we simply told in this passage, uh, don't be angry because you can't do it properly? I don't think that's the only lesson here. I think there is a, a lesson in that. But I also think it's important as we see Jesus defending, violently defending, the sacrificial system, we should care about God's worship as God has prescribed it. We should become the biggest promoters of the worship of God. And we should go to great lengths to protect it, to proclaim it, to provide it, to promote it, and to let others come and enjoy it. It's one of the reasons why here at Main Street we've become convicted to start back Sunday evening. That's why this week, Lord willing, we'll start back Wednesday evenings. We think one of the best things we at this church can provide is opportunities for worship of our God. And if Jesus was willing to go to these links to protect the worship of God, how far are we willing to go? To what links are we willing to go to be in worship with God as God has called us to worship. Now, this is, this is not a, a sermon to convict you to, to be here on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. If the Lord does that through this, that's the Lord's work. But, again, we must worship God as God calls us to worship Him. Anything else is a dishonor and distraction. The, the animal, the, the shepherds and the money changers were not doing a wrong service. They were just doing it in a wrong place, and most likely they were doing it with a wrong heart. They were probably extorting the people. But this text is not even about that. It's not just that we're taught about anger. It's not just we're taught to worship God as God calls us to worship Him. Ultimately, if we were to put an ultimate reason here, it's our second point. It's that Jesus is the point. He is the fulfillment. He is the conclusion. He is the sacrifice, the temple, the place to which we should all go. And so let's look at our second part of our passage as we see this this morning. And you can, you're, we're not surprised, are we? Jesus comes in, he sees this improper worship, he makes a whip, he drives those people out, and then immediately the very next thing that happens is the Jewish leaders come up and go, hey, we got some questions. Why? What are you doing? Why did you just do that? Do you have the authority to do that? Where's your permit? I, I need to see your permit. Now, were they doing it because they honestly wanted to know? Were they doing it because they were getting kickbacks from the system? We know this, that wouldn't be above the Pharisees to find a way to profit from the worship of God. 
We're not really told the motivation here in this circumstance anyway. But we do know that they question Jesus. Jesus, we need a sign. We need you to show us that you have the authority to do what you're doing. And much to their surprise, he gives them one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Now that called them, didn't it? That, that, that caught them in a, in a conflict. Because on the one hand, they're convinced there's no way he could do it. On the other hand, he's saying, watch me. And so they're caught between, we don't believe you. In fact, they say that it took 46 years for this temple to be built. There's no way you can build this in three days. And we asked him for a sign, and he said he'd give us one, and here it is. Do we take him on it? Do we call his bluff? We know they didn't, because they didn't believe him. Because they were thinking earthly. They were thinking practically. They, they were thinking about the structure. This space, this temple, this, this place. There's no way something could be rebuilt which was, torn, which was built in 46 years. Years of work. But Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple, was he? Jesus was talking about himself. And there is some irony here. Here's the, here's the true irony. He could have built the physical temple in three days had he wanted to. Um, there was, there'd be no problem for Jesus. I mean, Jesus says in the scriptures, I can make believers out of stone. So I, I really believe he could resurrect the temple um, had, had he decided to do so. But there's something deeper. There's something more spiritual. There, there's a, a, a more important truth going on. John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple, the place of worship. The place where man meets with God. The place where sacrifice is made as an atonement for sin. The place where hope and peace are found because we're in the presence of God. And what is Jesus saying here? You don't need this physical. You don't need this space. What you need is me. I am the temple. I am the place of worship. I am where man and God intersect. I am where you find sacrifice. I am where you have peace. One commentator says it's the human body of Jesus that uniquely manifests the Father and becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to man, the living abode of God on earth, the fulfillment of all the temple meant and the center of true worship. What Jesus really was saying here is you want to worship God, here I am. Here I am. And seeing the first half of this passage and, and, and hearing this in the second part, it almost takes us back knowing the rest of the story, right? Knowing what's going to end up happening by the end of John. Because what do the, what do the hearers, what do the Jews do? Do they worship God? Do they humble themselves to Jesus? Do they, do they submit themselves to his teaching and his rule and his reign? No, they try to destroy him. They're the very ones that tear the temple down. 
These are the people that will tear it down. And what does he say? He told them, he said, I'm going to do it. You tear it down. I'll build it up in three days. And he did. Three days later, he rose from the grave, victorious conqueror of death. The sacrifice he offered his own life as atonement for our sin was accepted. And here's what's so beautiful about this. We're, we're zoomed, we, get to be, we get to zoom into the future. John, John gives us a, a, a note of, of comment here. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus said, you ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. You need something to believe in, believe in this. Tear it down, I'll build it back up. And then, resurrection day, it's built back up. And what, is, what does John tell us here? The disciples believed. The disciples believed. But here's one last thought to ponder. Where were the Jews? Where were the Jews he told this to? Where were the ones he said, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. The disciples believed. We know they're there. They're following Jesus. How about the ones that he told this to? Did they believe? He did what he told them he would do. You tear it down, I'll build it up. Well, he did. We don't know. We're left wondering, are these some of the ones that did believe? Are they some of the ones that converted to Christianity upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's quite possible. Some of them were likely, though, ones that clung to the old system. They were ones who kept making their sacrifices, who kept waiting, following their own practices, their own desires. But the only hope for you and me today is not for any of us to revert back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's the hope in Jesus. It's to look to Jesus. He's, he is revealing this for the first time, really, in his ministry. This is the new concept for many. But for us today who, as Paul Harvey would say, we know the rest of the story. We know he did what he said he would do. We know that he fulfilled that which he promised. And sure, this passage does teach us about righteous anger. And sure, this passage does teach us about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament laws. But really, at the, at deep down at the, at the ground level, what this passage teaches us is, if we want to know God, if we want to meet with Him, if we want to have a personal relationship with our Creator and Maker, all we have to do is go to Jesus Christ. For He has given himself. He is the temple, the place of worship. May we take seriously the worship of our God and may we look to Christ as the center of that worship and may we seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. And may we do so out of a desire of love for our maker, for our creator, for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, how we need you. 
We are prone to wander. We're prone to anger at our circumstances, at ourselves, at the world. Lord, we're prone to adding too much of us into worship of you. We make too much of ourselves and too little of you, God. We're told in scripture that we must decrease and you must increase in our lives and in our hearts. May we continue to read these accounts, these historical accounts of what Jesus came and did and what he promises to do. And by seeing them and witnessing what took place, may we come to a greater sense of hope and trust and rest in him. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for giving it to us this day. We ask that it would be all that we need. Would it draw our attention to our Savior? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.